Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Thomas Mullaney and Dr. Christopher Ray about their new book, Where Research Begins, Choosing a Research Project That Matters to You and the World. Welcome to the show, Chris and Tom. It's so nice to be here. Thanks so much. I am so glad you're both here and we get to talk about this really important topic of where research actually begins because it's such a huge stumbling block for so many of us. But before we dive into that, will you each tell us about yourself? Tom, could we start with you? Uh, Sure. Uh, So I'm a professor at Stanford University. I've been here for 16 years. It's hard to believe, but I teach in the history department uh, in a variety of capacities, history of Asia and China, history of technology, and then I'm also a associated with the Science, Technology, and Society group here, and uh, Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And um, right now, I'm in the process of finishing three different books. I won't bore you with all of the (laughs) different topics, but I try to keep myself as busy as possible. That sounds very busy. (laughs) Um, Chris, will you tell us about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm a native of Berkeley, California. I now live up in Vancouver. I've been teaching at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver since 2008 and uh, love it up here. I am mostly a kind of literary historian that focuses on the modern Chinese speaking world. And I have done a variety of projects related to comedy, related to swindlers. I have uh, did a book on early Chinese cinema history And one of the things I really love about this career is just how much freedom it offers you. And one of the reasons uh, Tom and I bonded over research was because of our mutual love of this type of freedom. So yeah, I'm very excited to be talking research with you guys today. So that dives into our next question, which is what inspired you to write a book about where research begins? Uh, (laughs) Well, it... um... It, it started with abject failure, I guess, um, was the simplest way to put it. So um, like probably everybody in this, in this profession, you know, we're, we're, we're very aware of all of the different how-to guides of research, the ones that teach you how to build a bibliography or how to do a literature review. And um, in grad school at Columbia, uh, we were kind of lumped together um, in this class where we were assigned to teach a group of undergrads about how to go through the research process. And so we sort of like, you know, like human beings do, we just recreated our environment. We recreated our past and we built the syllabus. We put a lot of work into it. Like, I mean, a lot. And uh, we tried to guide these students, all of whom were brilliant through this exact like 15 week class that by the end of it, we imagined they were all going to have these, um, these research projects in their in their field, and um, what we learned pretty quickly, especially by I don't know week two or three or four, is that the train was leaving the station, and there were a lot of very scared kids at the station who never even got on board, um, and we really didn't understand why. They're brilliant. They, you know, they're active, uh, but. Basically, by the time that the classic timeline gets to like building a literature review or building a bibliography, um, so many of our students couldn't even articulate what it really was they wanted to work on. And so the whole the class basically <laughs> failed. I mean, we kind of failed them in some way, not not on purpose. And we, we, we never stopped talking about that experience. And, and we started over, you know, we parted. Columbia, we went our separate ways, but we stayed in close contact as friends and then on this subject. And we're like, what went wrong? Uh, And then we came to the realization that there are no guides out there about that extremely early phase of a research process before someone really knows what their question is. And so we said, let's let's just write a book about that, Um, how to get on the train, so to speak. And then let's let other people teach people how to, you know, do literature reviews and do all of that critical stuff. Let's just focus on that early phase that where so many students get lost. I don't know if that accords with with your memory of it, Chris. 
Well, I remember it was a lot of fun to design the course. Like you and I, we had never met. We hadn't had a, a class together before, but yeah, we were just kind of thrown together and we would meet every week, you know, to kind of compare notes on how things were going in our separate sections at the Hungarian pastry shop, I think it was. Um, and it was a lot of fun and it was great to have a sounding board and like check in with someone because, you know, teaching can sometimes feel like, you know, like who, who do I talk to after I've talked to my students? So it was a lot of fun. But I don't know if any, anyone out there listening has had this feeling of like you have a best laid plan. You've built your syllabus. You know, it's, it's perfect. But then it just doesn't quite execute in the way that you thought. Yeah. And, so and it really was perfect. It really, I mean, it, really it was airtight. It was perfect. And completely yeah, failed. Like, you know, build your bibliography. What is a primary source? You know, all of the the usual stuff. But, um, you know, you know, it's that usual. Like you're competing for students' attention. Like I think it was uh, a one credit course, and they were not expecting to have to do this much work. But a lot of what we were asking them to do is this really existential stuff about, you know, here you are. What do you want to do? What do you want to do with this course? With this opportunity? And um, there were some things we just could not answer for these individual students. Some were in, and they're in different fields too, right? They came from like business or political science or literary studies. And so we realized this was kind of a more general problem of like, how do you get started in research? I did an episode with the gentleman who created the Museum of Failure. He's a <laughs> awesome. psychologist. And, yeah, and They're going to have the Mulaney wing soon. Right? <laughs> and so if you'd like to send him the failed syllabus, he could maybe frame it and put it on the wall. But what you're describing of having a something just not work, no matter how hard you try to make it work, and then not letting the idea go, and much later creating a book that addressed why, you know, the root cause of, well, it didn't work because we didn't do this foundational thing that people needed. That's pretty much the whole museum of failures. Great ideas. I mean, really great stuff that just didn't meet the need exactly the way the need was presenting. I could send half Um, my life to that museum, I feel like, and just let them, (laughs) I just... No, but it, 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 and it's something, um, I think over time, you know, as we stayed in touch and, you know, every time that Chris would come back to visit family, we would, we would, we would meet up and, um, and then things started to be, you know, all of these new experiences started to be folded in. Of course, we both had, you know, we had our own students. Um, and I would say that probably seven out of 10 office hour conversations I know for myself in some way, shape or form kept coming back to this really early phase of research. So, so something that Stanford has kind of going for it, and I think this is true for dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of institutions, is you have all of these incredibly smart students who are in some weird way constantly reapplying to the university or the college that already accepted them. <laughs> so they're like, there's, they, they, they keep trying to harness all of their uh, articulateness and all of their vocabulary and, and, and all of the, the language that they know is like the insider language. And they, and they just unleash it on you during office hours out of an understandable sense of anxiety. They're, they want you to think that they're, they belong there and that they're, that they're smart enough to be there. And so many of those office hour conversations I know on my end was trying to get them to calm that instinct down and kind of say, listen, you know, I have no doubt of your intelligence. So let's just put that aside because counterintuitively, all of that intelligence, which got you here today, all of that ability to articulate yourself, that's your enemy right now. Because when you're in the very beginning stages of a research process, if you are too articulate too soon, like premature, um, you know, sort of a premature elegance, then you're actually never going to get to the place or it's going to be delayed by a long shot, um, getting to that place where you really realize what it is, uh, that you're after. And that's, that's over time. And and Chris has some great stories from there. And I had some stories and we're like, you know what, you know, removing the names of the students, we should share this with our readers. Uh, because I think that the students and, and also the instructors will actually see themselves or see their students in these episodes. So the book is full of these conversations, you know, anonymized, but these conversations that get to this idea of 
how do you get your head into the space of that messy, inarticulate, vulnerable place where you really do figure out like, what am I working on? Like, what is my problem? Why do I keep thinking about this thing? So that was a lot of fun during many, many coffee conversations and lunches and stuff over the last decade and a half we spent on this book. I remember. I'm curious. Yeah, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I was just thinking of something. I, I taught two online courses this summer, uh, one about cinema and one about the modern Chinese novel. And for both of them, um, I was trying again to have students uh, produce a research proposal by the end of this course. All of them were like new to literary studies, new to cinema studies. And I remember late in the term having an office hours conversation online uh, with this one student who, you know, I was like, so let's talk about your project and like, what are you interested in and so on and so forth. And, you know, I got the tools now, like I just wrote a book about research. And she said, well, my thesis is that most of the English translations of modern Chinese literature are wrong. And I was like, okay, uh, you have my attention, but I, I'm reflexively like not sympathetic to that type of approach, right? What does this kid know about it? And I was like, well, um, you know, like, can you tell me how you arrived at that um, idea? And she said something which uh, left me rather uh, gobsmacked, where she said, well, you know, one of the most famous stories is this 1918 uh, story by Lu Xun called Diary of a Madman. And I don't think it should be translated as Diary of a Madman. I think it should be Diary of a Lunatic. I was like, okay, you know, what, you know, why does that matter? And like, why, why did you think that, you know, after all, there was this Nikolai Gogol story called Diary of a Madman. Everyone knows that, you know, Lu Xun copied him. And she pointed out, you know, I noticed something in the very first line that this madman says is, tonight, the moon is very bright. And then in his second diary entry, he says, tonight, there's no moon at all. And I was like, you're right, like lunatic, you know, Luna, like moon, there's, there's a connection here. And so she had noticed something about this like canonical work and made herself vulnerable in office hours to talk about it and made me feel like this student has noticed something and there might indeed be a project here. But kind of starting, like if she had tried to sound really smart or, you know, not got beyond that grand claim, I don't think it would have been a lot harder to have that conversation or to appreciate what the student was getting at. I'm curious if either of you had a time as an undergrad or graduate student when you experienced what your Columbia students did, which is when you didn't know what you wanted to research when you were expected to come up with a research idea and you didn't know where to begin. Oh, all the time. I mean, all the time. It was, I think there, I, I, just speaking for myself, I think there's almost like too many of those episodes to boil them down. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to come back to this other side of life and career, but I, I have sat in many meetings with faculty, with like colleagues I admire deeply and, you know, I think the world of. And I've, I've, I have heard it said, um, you know, there, there's a sense that I, I, I think many instructors and faculty have that some students have it and some students don't, or some students get it and some students don't. And what I mean by that is, and, and, and Chris and I could have fallen victim to that idea. I mean, we could have taught the course we did it in grad school. Some of the students totally kind of walked in the door knowing who they are and what they care about and therefore could get on the train and start building a literature review. And then we could have had these sort of stragglers, you know, sitting on the um, sitting at the station and not, you know, and seemingly disinterested or seemingly not getting it. And we could have arrived at the false conclusion, like, oh, okay, you know, Billy really gets it, but Bob really doesn't. And that's just maybe one is cut out for this kind of research and the other one isn't. Um, and I know I, I've seen that. I remember that distinctly as an undergrad and a grad. You never hear it said so explicitly, but you can just feel, feel it in the energy. Um, and I think, you know, Chris and I have talked about this a lot. I think this is a huge disservice to our students. Um, I think it's uh, it's something that's it, it has huge implications for equality and access to education and, and sort of, you know, educational experiences when 
faculty or instructors take their own shortcomings, meaning things that they are in fact not really doing or bringing to the table, and then just blaming students for that perceived deficit. Um, and you know, I think that when we just have, and this is not, I want to emphasize, I love like Umberto Eco's How to Write a Thesis. I love the craft of research. I love, you know, dozens of these various kind of works on source criticism um, in, in various fields. But I would be, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that most of them give this generic advice that what a student is supposed to do is come up with a topic, you know, the size of the, <laughs> the galaxy, basically. Uh, and, then, and then narrow it down <laughs> as if that's an easy thing to do or even the right way to do it. And some students, maybe because they've got, you know, they've got professor parents or they've somehow they just had an instinct for it. They, they, they figure that out for themselves with no help from really anyone. Uh, and, and the other, I don't know, 70, 80, 90%, I don't know, um, have no idea what it means to narrow down a topic because that's just the wrong way to think about it. But then the, almost in some way, the world blames them for that deficit. And I think that we're, we're leaving behind countless untold numbers of, I mean, the, like the student that Chris just mentioned, and I know many come to mind for me, just given a little bit of equipment, I've had students just leave me absolutely in awe of how amazing their instincts and questions are when they have not had like one class in my field. Um, they're brilliant. And they just, but narrow down a topic is just the absolute wrong way to, to prepare them for success. So yeah, I, I, I can, I face this, I don't know how many times. Um, and that was a big, you know, motivation for us to, to work on this. And I think this is not just a novice researcher thing either that, you know, we, we talk about it as being topic land. You can get trapped in this uh, realm of topic land and never escape, but it's not just people who are doing their very, very first research prog uh, project. You know, you could have written a whole book and you know, we both have written whole books where it's like your first, you know, research monograph and then you finish it and then you face the question of, well, what next? Well, you have kind of affiliated yourself with a topic and demonstrated your expertise, but I think a lot of senior scholars get trapped by their own topics. They become they're the professor known for X, yeah, definitely. or the scholar known for Y, and then they're just expected to kind of self-replicate their earlier topic, and they're asked to review everything about that topic, and yeah. maybe they're maybe they have changed as a person. Maybe they want to do something else. And um, so this can be really debilitating. Like this can result in a decade or more of someone feeling like that was the past me and like my center of gravity has shifted. So, you know, why am I still in that topic land? Yeah, I think that's exciting for students too. If like if you just share with them, it's like, listen, you know, first year student, this is not just a, this is not just be, the, the, what, what we're trying to talk to you about this process, this phase of research. This isn't just because this is your first time. Like, you know, when, when someone's on their sixth, seventh project, if they're, the universe allows them to live that long, they've got to go through this too. Like every single time you start a new project, um, you're, you're as lost as the very first time you, you ever began. You know how to do, you know, undertake various methods more clearly. But in terms of the process of figuring out like, what the hell am I working on? Like, what is really the question that underlies this is you, you're, you're a kid again, you're a kid all over again. I've had that conversation with students and it's a mixture of like shock and also comfort that, wow, you know, someone who I look up to is, is telling me that we're in the same boat because he's working on a new project and he's lost too. Um, and it's pretty empowering. Sorry, Christina, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no. Um, I was just going to say, as I was listening to you and as I was reading the book, I was thinking about these fundamental questions you want um, scholars to ask themselves, which is, you know, who are you and what matters to you and what do you want to look at? And so many of us who don't fit the traditional model, meaning white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, able um we were told that our interests don't matter. Mm. 
And who we are is not something that academia is going to accept. Yes, we were good enough to get in, but now we have to present as much like a traditional um, student as possible. And so I can see how sometimes that's just stymieing in a research class because those questions of who are you, what do you care about, what would you genuinely like to look into, we've been told for a long time that those aren't going to be academic questions. Mm. Those aren't going to be academic subjects or there won't be sources for you to use or there won't be appropriate language for you to use for what you find to sound intellectual enough. Yeah, yeah. And have, I, have students brought those worries absolutely. to you? Absolutely. And I, I would add to that, I, I, I think that it's not it's, – it, it is all the dimensions that you just brought up. And then there is an additional one, which is I think – equally insidious. And you can put it like this. If, um, and I'll just use a, a history sort of method here, uh, sort of the, the, the metaphor of history, but I think this applies in, in many other fields in the humanities and social sciences. If, um, if a white male, heterosexual, cisgender uh, uh, scholar works on medieval, the, 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 the Ottoman world, let's say, so they're going to work on the Ottoman Empire, at some point in that person's career, they will actually have the benefit, and I think this is a privilege, this is a privilege you could call it, of being asked, why Why do you? Why are you interested in that? You are not, you know, the idea is, is that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a distance between who you are and this project, and so therefore the curiosity is to ask that question. And so the scholar benefits from being put on the spot and saying like, you know, what is it? And the person gets prompted to ask this question. If you were to, if you were to imagine a scholar who is of Chinese descent, who works on Chinese history, I would, you know, my, my money is, is that that question comes up less because there is an assumption. And this might also apply to a person who identifies as a woman working on women's history or gender and sexuality, or a person who identifies as African-American working in African-American history, that the question of how curious, why is it that you're interested in that will likely come up less because there is an assumption that, um, that one's sort of identity is exactly congruent with, for lack of a better word, census categories. And, I, and, and my view is that it actually sort of deprives the opportunity to scholars who are, they're million, you know, human beings are million dimensional. Uh, they have, you know, we have dimensions of identity that, that extend in all different axes. Uh, and something that we talk about, you know, a lot, Chris and I have talked a lot for so many years going into this book is how do those dimensions shape what it is that a human being out of the infinite number of stimuli we're all subjected to on an average day, how come it, that some things catch our eye and some things don't? And, and how does that intersect with all of the dimensionalities that make up a person? And so if you have two people, one of whom is constantly being prompted and asked and sort of challenged to think about like, what is it that brings you to this? And then another individual where the world sort of incorrectly assumes that anyone who is identity X should intrinsically work on a project X, um, you know, ostensibly, I actually think is yet another insidious dimension of this profession that needs to be addressed. And this is to put very bluntly, you know, there is absolutely no reason that someone who identifies as Japanese American shouldn't work on Ottoman history or someone who identifies as Turkish of Turkish descent shouldn't work on, um, you know, various fields and ask the problems that connect to what it is about them that is almost like a psychic irritant, something about existence. And this extends well beyond the humanities and social sciences. I received this really, really nice email. I shared it with Chris from a MacArthur winning uh, microbiologist who said that after reading your book, you know, um, yours and Chris's book, I realized that this is exactly what I lead my, my lab mates through, my students in my lab working on, you know, DNA replication and things. So here I, you know, listen, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Here is someone talking about the absolute, you know, subatomic, in some cases I've had conversations, you know, the, the non-human world, uh, biomineralization, who actually 
in looking at the the kinds of issues we're talking about, say, absolutely, I didn't just stumble upon DNA research because it was where the money was or because you know someone assigned it to me. There is something about what I study every day which fundamentally, existentially bothers me as a human being on this earth. Um, and that's, you know, it's, I think that any structure that says to scholars, either who you are doesn't matter, or I'm going to make all sorts of assumptions based on who I think you are and what I think you naturally would want to work on. I think those are two sides of the same insidious coin that basically says- Of course you work on DNA. You have DNA. Exactly. It's like this this sense of depriving people the opportunity to- um, to let their humanity in all its, you know, show up. Uh, and so I, that's why, you know, in this, in this book, we, we, we really dwell for a long time in saying, you know, this is not, it might not feel productive to stay in this zone for this long, but we promise you, um, it's sort of like a stitch in time saves nine. Like if you actually come to some kind of understanding about why it is that you think about this when you go to bed at night and why it is that you think about something when you wake up or when you walk down the street. Uh, It is going to save you time in the long run, A, and it's going to lead you to something that is meaningfully fulfilling along the way, especially when, as we all know in research, there's so many cloudy, cold days where the world does not reward you. And what's going to sustain you through those dark times? What's going to sustain you is that in studying DNA replicates, it turns out that you're also communing with who you are, like at an existential level, and that matters. Um, it's a long-winded way of getting at it, but the full humanity is 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 always at play in the best research. Chris, would you like to add anything? I think that I mean, back to your earlier point. You know, all all of us have to again, figure out what we want to do next. And I think be really attuned to our, you know, naive questions as well, not to dismiss them outright. And also need some kind of center that we can carry with us, some some kind of mobile, not, not a fortress center as a researcher, but one that you can move from project to project and where you can take into account these outside voices that may be challenging you. Some may be justified challenges, other may be unjustified challenges, and you need to uh, be self-aware enough to take those into consideration and to judge them with some equanimity. And I think that's a really difficult thing to get at, and that's why introspection is really important, and not just kind of to cheerlead people to know know thyself, but um, also to have techniques that you can use to say, well, you know, I'm working on this case, but I, I can see now that this case study that I'm working on is connected to a problem that has to do with cases completely outside my field so that you never say, well, that's not in my field. You know, that's not on my topic. And therefore, I'm not going to look at that. Because if you do that, then you end up excluding this whole world of possibilities. So when we have the second part of our book is called Get Over Yourself versus Become a Self-Centered Researcher, right? Find your center and then get over yourself and join some of these larger conversations. Find people outside your field who may be working on a similar type of problem. And so I think back to your earlier point that there are some particular obstacles who uh, that face people who are you know in marginalized community or not um, you know who get challenged for the wrong reasons. I think that that is particularly important for them as well uh, to have this type of self awareness when you go out into the research world and you are in that seminar class uh, trying to make your voice heard or and and sticking to your guns even if people don't understand you know what you're saying in the first um, instance that you want to. Um, kind of keep your own counsel in some ways and produce what we call self-evidence. Like you want to take notes for yourself that will guide your thinking even before you uh, get really, really public and, you know, try to have findings and conclusions and implications down the road. And you encourage us in the book to find a strong, um, sounding board to talk to that the first part of the book is really about getting introspective and, breaking the topic down, but uh, not breaking the topic completely apart. Um, And 
then we do need to find some like-minded people who in some way are doing something similar because we can't uh, do our work without having some sort of data from other colleagues to refer to and to build our, our bibliography and, and our historiography lists. But then we need to choose a, a sounding board. And it's really important who you choose as that sounding board. Can you talk about the, the role of choosing one, but also being a good sounding board? Yeah. Um, yeah, you want a strong sounding board and one who's also not too strong, <laughs> if it makes sense. Um, because, I mean, let's put aside the sort of obvious sort of caricatured version of a bad mentor for a second. Obviously, you don't want someone who's going to kind of try to solve all your problems for you or or, or assign you topics or things like that, um, you know, sort of with a kind of malicious air to it. But even when we put aside that caricatured version, even really well-meaning mentors can accidentally do that without knowing it, just because every conversation with a more senior mentor has this asymmetry of power and you know, a passing suggestion from, from one in the more powerful position can sound an awful lot like, you know, a command to a student or, or as powerfully as like, if you do this, I will be happy. Or if you do this, I, I, you know, I will support you. Um, and so it's, there is a dimension of mentoring that has a quality of therapy to it. There, there's a, there's a therapeutic process in the sense that, what you're really trying to do is create and hold a space for um, for your counterpart, for the for your the student or whoever it is that you, that you're trying to help through a process, um, while also of course bringing the benefit of an outsider's clarity to a situation. We've all been in the experience where it's a whole lot easier to read someone else's writing and be able to say to them, uh, I think you know, I think basically what you're trying to get at here is X or Y or Z, uh, or let me, you know, I noticed that something on page two and something on page 15 kind of belongs together. It's way easier to do that when you haven't lived with it forever and you're not sort of so vested in it. So there is that dimension as well. But I mean, some features, I, I you know, some features of that mentoring style would be, uh, I'll, I'll offer some and then Chris, if you want to uh, jump in, I think one is that it is non-judgmental. Um, that is core. It has to be something where you are maintaining an equanimity as your, you know, student or colleague or junior colleague is working through something precisely because if, if everyone's kind of doing it right, the situation is very vulnerable. It, um, it would be unfair for someone to say, don't try to impress me, you know, put aside all of your, you know, your SAT vocabulary and just really tell me the more human story about why it is that you came to this process. It would be very unfair then if the person took you up on that invitation, allowed themselves to be vulnerable, that then, <laughs> then you kind of judged what came out, you know, in the next sentence. You've got to really maintain. Um, I mean, I can give, I can give one example to put that into perspective. There's a student who uh, sat down with me in my class on history of modern China. Um, and really the class doesn't matter. It's just, that's, that's what I happen to teach and said, okay, I'd like to do a project on, uh, geomancy on feng shui. And my response was, okay, you know, that sounds great. Uh, tell me, you know, what is it that you want to do about that? Cause that's a very large topic. And long story short is that I could feel, it was just very obvious. I could feel that the person was just hauling out every, big sounding historiographic word that they could think of modernity, um, transition from empire to nation state. It was, it was just sort of one big sounding word after the next. And it's, this is an assumption that I have, which of course, you know, is not necessarily is that, that, you know, people don't get up in the morning, uh, and, and, and dwell over their bowl of cereal or their bowl of whatever, you know, worrying about, big sounding words, the things that we, that drive us are far more close at hand. And so I said, you know, I didn't want to put the person on the, on the spot. I said, but you know, you know, what is it about it? What is it about? It? We, we, we kept at it. And then there was this one moment where the student kind of their whole energy adjusted or changed or sort of relaxed. And then suddenly the student started to say, <laughs> you know, listen, um, my mom is 
the most rational person I know. They're a lawyer. She's a lawyer, uh, just like totally has everything under control all the time. And she believes in feng shui. So, you know, get this image of she believes that if the door is facing the south or the north, or if we put the, you know, the, the, the flower pot here or there, that it has some implications for the world. And I just don't get that. I don't understand how this person who I understand as the most rational person could believe in something that is irrational as far as I'm concerned. And so right then was the maximum vulnerability of that student. And if I had made a misstep in that situation and I, and I could have just blurted out, well, gosh, that's, that's, that's offensive of you to imagine that geomancy is irrational, how Eurocentric, how da, da, da. you know, I could have, I could have crushed that vulnerability right at that moment. Um, I could have thrown five different writings at them and you should read so-and-so who totally blows out of the water, the idea of, you know, Eastern irrationality and da, da, da. But instead it's just like, okay, um, you know, what is it about feng shui that you understand it this way? What else is irrational, do you think? And we just sort of stayed there. I wasn't, I didn't want to endorse the idea. I didn't try to, you know, there's a difference between holding a space and then expressing agreement with something. That's not the point. But just holding the space and letting the person work through something. And the key of that is that it got us, the, the, the student eventually did write a paper about feng shui, but the problem of the paper wasn't feng shui or geomancy per se. It was this question about rationality, irrationality, who decides, um, especially in, in context of sort of cultural clash and cultural encounter. And long story short, it became a really fascinating set of questions and a fascinating problem. We would never have gotten there, A, if I just allowed the person to try to impress me with their vocabulary, but it also probably, it couldn't have gotten there if I had done something damaging or destructive in that moment when the person was taking me up on the offer of being vulnerable. Um, and that was, you know, I can tell you that there are many moments in my mentoring that did not go well. And I felt like I probably did step on a, a budding flower, or, you know, accidentally or inadvertently. So this is not to say that I, you know, I, I always know what to do. But in that particular case, th that informs, at least for me, what I aspire to in the next conversation that I have with a student to try to replicate that sense of holding that space and, and getting the person away from cases and attempts to sound intelligent down into this more vulnerable sub-basement area of like, why does this bother you exactly? Let's go there first, and then we'll come back up uh, and, 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 and move into literature reviews and secondary literature, uh, but not until later. I don't know, Chris, what do you, what do you think? I think this is really hard to do in some ways. Um, and it's hard to do one-on-one. -on -one. You know, when you do have that student in office hours, like a private, you know, uh, space where they can be vulnerable, it's it's even harder if you're trying to teach a big course and, you know, you have 100 students and you want students to get their feet wet and research and think about these things and be introspective. And so, like, how do you, uh, you know, try to, you know, replicate this type of success on a broader scale. Because, you know, I've been, you know, really in, endeavoring in my course, like this past summer, trying to, uh, you know, make this type of self-knowledge and insight and also productivity, right? You're, you're describing a type of uh, self-insight that led to an actual project. You know, how do you replicate that for more people? And I've tried to... I've tried to get students into a mindset of, you know, we're trying to build a research community here and where like from the get-go, you're having a lot of peer interaction and you're trying to empower other students to be sounding boards for each other. And, you know, I've sat in on this, you know, I've, I've tried to structure this as part of undergraduate courses as well as graduate courses and, you know, listen in um, and on those conversations and, and hear how they go. And what Tom is describing of how difficult it can be to check oneself and not to be too helpful by just providing a bunch of suggestions or too challenging about like, well, you really shouldn't be thinking that, like your assumptions are wrong and trying to just jump in and disabuse someone. That's really hard to do. And I do think that it's possible. I, I've seen successes of just students talking to each other you know, and then surveying them after the course has ended. And they'd be like, I really got a lot out of that type of peer discussion. 
it was much more fun than just talking to myself. So I think like if you ever wanted to try to do this for other students, um, it you know just say you know this is these are good ways to be a sounding board. Say like I notice you mentioned this. You know where did that interest come from, or why you know why why does that term uh, why is that term the one that you chose or just the plain like tell me more about that, so that students do feel like yeah they have more to say. There's a prompt, right? The prompt does. Uh, move them further beyond their their you know trying to get out of it by just doing one uh, response, and hopefully will lead to more leads. And again, the person who's listening in, they do come with that disinterest. They just want the other person to succeed, but they're not going to force a topic on them. So I think that is one thing that is uh, really important if you want to try to help a lot of students, and you don't have the luxury of doing one at a time. In the book, you list commonly made mistakes. And this, what you both just shared, circles back to two of those. One is not letting yourself be vulnerable, and the other is not listening to yourself. And so, by being a good sounding board, the student can be encouraged to let themselves be vulnerable and to listen to themselves and therefore avoid those commonly made mistakes. Other commonly made mistakes that you talk about are writing for someone else and not writing things down. You've alluded a bit, both of you, to students feeling they need to use language that impresses the listener, that they need to present their initial idea in a way that sounds very intellectual. Um, And that is trying to think about someone else instead of getting to the heart of why you're doing it. Can you talk more about the mistake of writing for someone else? You know, it, it, it's a little bit like letters, uh, letter to a young poet, uh, I think, in the sense of, you know, what, when, once, when you start to prematurely imagine a viewing audience or a listening audience, um, and the, ironically, the, 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 this, yeah, well, I, 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 I'm a fundamental believer in just pervasive human intelligence and pervasive human genius. But if we imagine like a societal, a societally determined or, or estimated idea of intelligence, you've got, you've got students who have been, been given, you know, gold stars and cookies their entire life by impressing people who are older than them, teachers, you know, um, parents, adult figures, or some, you know, granting institutions, whatever it might be. And it's, uh, and, and then it's 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 it, it's really hard to 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 tone that down. It, it can be a form of almost like an addiction, and so it's um you know then suddenly you're sitting with someone and you're saying okay well you know welcome to welcome to college or university and and one thing in theory that this place is supposed to be was different is that this is a place where you really dive into knowledge production. Um, this is a place where you you learn what it really looks like to fashion you know in this extremely messy and collaborative way new forms of knowledge that then will be synthesized in the in the, in the context of books and articles and textbooks and so you're 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 saying to them you know okay you have to kind of give up on that um and it's and it's like wait a minute you want me to take off all of my armor and all of the stuff that has served me it's a big ask and so i mean i th- th- there's there's something there's something really concrete that a mentor can do just to cycle back and merge these two a bit is um, which, which combines this issue of, you know, articulation and not being too, not trying to sound too intelligent, but then also things that only an outsider can do with great clarity. And this is something we talk about in the book. Basically the method, if I had to summarize it is let's say you and I are talking about your your project and i'm just asking you in really open-ended ways to tell me what it is that you work on and then in that conversation i will adopt the role of taking what you say at face value and you know i'm not going to debate you on any point i'm just going to say okay so you've given me these nouns and these verbs and maybe this place and this time and this set of actors and this question um going on that and taking that at face value I can build a picture of what you just told me. And then what I'd like to do is hold that picture back up to you and ask you in essence, like, is this it? You know, like, cause in theory, if I, if you've told me everything I need to need to know, and if I've been listening and then I take those pieces and I put it into a mosaic that kind of makes sense. And then I show it back to you. 
if everything has worked, you should be jumping for joy. You should be like, you know, falling out of your chair because this is the thing that bothers you. This is like what gets you up in the morning and what keeps you from going to bed at night. And what happens inevitably, again, for people working on their sixth project, their fourth, their first, it doesn't matter, is inevitably the first response is, uh, no, um, no, no, no. And then what happens is the person says, oh, I should probably have mentioned blah and blah. And they start to say additional nouns and additional verbs. And then as the sounding board, you say, oh, okay, that's interesting that none of that came out in the first go. So let me take these new pieces that you just gave me, put them in a a rearranged mosaic, and let me show this back to you. And once again, the person's like, well, hmm. And and there's a confusion, there's a frustration because they know you're being sincere and authentic. They know you're not distorting anything on purpose, but they also can tell that every time you, you show something back to them, it's not clicking. It's not, it's not tugging at their heartstrings. And so it's like, oh my gosh, do I actually know how to put into words what it is that bothers me? And then you can really mess with their minds in a positive way, which is you can build this mosaic um, and then you can start to extrapolate. You can start to say to a person you're trying to help, say, okay, well, you've given me, let's say four dots and I can draw a particular, I can draw a line through these dots and it creates a trajectory you know, I'm just using a metaphor. It creates a trajectory. So based on the dots you've given me and the trajectory that I've got here, that's this curve that fits. In theory, I would assume you're also interested in alpha, beta, gamma, X, Y, and Z, right? And then, you know, almost inevitably, and again, at all levels of research, the person will say, oh gosh, (laughs) no, 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 no. I couldn't care less about that other stuff. But that's a productive moment because the person says, oh my gosh, you are being sincere and authentic. And you, yes, I can totally why you think I would be interested in that, but I'm not. And so once again, it kind of gets someone back into that space of realizing this totally bizarre aspect of research, if we're really honest, is, oh my gosh, I've been working on something for maybe months, maybe years, and I don't actually know what I'm working on. Um, and that's kind of the first step in, in, in taking those next very important steps of figuring out what it is that I'm working on. And that's the irony of research. You can actually be making progress on a project. This happens all the time. You could be making serious progress, primary sources, secondary sources, literature reviews, even conference papers, even articles sometimes, and still not be in full possession of what it is that you're doing. And that's something that an outside mentor can really help clarify Um Again, in all of the examples I gave, and then I'll, I'll mute my mic, in all of the examples I just gave, never once am, does the mentor suggest something like, you should work on this, or uh, why don't you just do this, or go read this. None of those things came up. It's simply taking what the person has told you faithfully, showing it back to them, and them having that moment, if they're honest with themselves that, oh gosh, no, that's that's definitely not something that sends my EKG off the charts. I wonder why it is or what I'm missing in my explanations. And it's remarkable how many different applications uh, can come out of this type of honesty and honest uh, discussion. So it can lead to you know more sources. It can, it can lead to what is my next source? If I'm interested in this, if this is the, the question that I really want to answer, this is the problem that's bugging me. You know, from here, my next step is to go here. And so it will lead to that kind of iterative, uh, positive cycle. But it can also be used to, you know, if you're, if you're playing with the variables and be like, okay, so like if you, you've described your project with these parameters, this place, time, um, you know, subject and the like, but if we change the place variable, right? Let's say it was this completely different um, case, would you be equally interested in it? Would you be less interested in it or more interested in it? And if the person is honest in how they respond to you, they may have a better sense of what is their problem, what is their research problem. And not just that, they will also be able to then identify other people's studies who, again, may be outside of their field, but could end up being really useful to them. So it's, again, a really elemental thing. It can be a very simple type of discussion. But if it's non-judgmental and if it is probing, so you're not just being a nice guy or gal, 
right? You are actually probing the person and drawing a response, getting them to write the stuff down so they don't forget. Um, that can really lead to some research breakthroughs. Um, one of the things that you were hoping that we would have time for today is talking about why research matters at the college level. Um, we often encourage the graduate students to do research and undergraduates to do coursework in most of their classes. Can you talk about why you both are passionate about making sure research projects are part of the college level as well? This is, this is a really important um, issue for a whole bunch of reasons. I'll try to just limit myself to maybe one or two. At, a, at, a, at an intellectual level, it is, um, it's our job, I think, as, an, as educators at the college and university level to, to convey to our students that the production of knowledge is just this fundamentally messy, collaborative human you know, endeavor. And, um, the, the problem with a coursework only kind of framework, which in many, you know, for many students that that's their experience, the, the nature of, uh, courses and classes are as, you know, as stressful as they can be. And of course, as difficult as they are, they're extremely clean experiences. They all happen in exactly the same amount of time, um, regardless, basically, of the class, they're either you know quarter system class or a semester system class. It doesn't matter if it's on the you know a course on the Odyssey or a course on organic chemistry. Seemingly, every everything in 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 the realm of knowledge and knowledge production all is parceled into these little administrative units we call quarters and semesters. And as we know, as researchers, that is about as untrue as you know as anyone could imagine. Some some projects take longer than others. They have different, they live different lives than others. Um, and we need our students to witness that and experience it firsthand because if they don't, then we have a bigger problem on our hands once they're finished, which is they might leave college or university really thinking of knowledge production as this routinized, um, very clean world. And, uh, and that gets us that that causes all sorts of problems at a societal level uh, that, you know, just to name a few, that's, that's what leads people among many other issues to, to imagine that because uh, a group of scientists adjust their findings or their models or projections about climate change or COVID or whatever it might be, that that's the equivalent of waffling or that they are, you know, that maybe the, the science wasn't that good or, oh, science is always going back and forth on these issues and therefore it's credibility. And that to me is an outgrowth of a fundamental distorted view of knowledge production itself, which if we had hundreds of thousands of students and millions of students really experiencing the messy beauty of actual knowledge production, then they would be equipped when they saw, you know, climate scientists adjusting their models and realize like, oh, that's actually par for the course. That's how knowledge production really looks and feels. And I know it because I, I, I saw it and did it firsthand. Um, as a student. And then the other part of it is that it, it offers so much more opportunity for, um, for a sense of belonging and coherence and a sense of having really done something in college. I can't count the number of conversations I've had with students. And I, I, I had this kind of too, where you get to the end of a college experience and you're not quite sure what it was, like what it added up to. Yes, you majored in stuff, you mitered in stuff, whatever it might be. But again, everything was cut up into these little bite-sized portions of semesters and quarters. And if you never do a research project, uh, but you know, or if you're never involved in, there, there are other ways to achieve this, but I'll limit it to research. If you haven't done a research process, then chances are you have never experienced a, um, a kind of intellectual endeavor that bridges or that bleeds across these quarter, quarter, semester, semester boundaries. Everything is just self-contained in these 10 and 15 week units and nothing goes beyond it. So everything just begins and ends. It's like single service, you know, single service plastic or a single serving packet of sugar rather than the idea that, oh, I'm, I'm learning how to engage in knowledge production and and I'm a human being and I have all of these different dimensionalities uh, and I and I carry myself I carry my center from 
building one and classroom A to building two and classroom B. And I, and I, and I want to be an active sort of guide of my own intellectual journey. And I want to build a program for me, you know, for who it is that I, that I feel I am and, you know, the pragmatic things that I need to fulfill. And I think that when we, you know, to me, if day one, week one, um, we should, the students should be encouraged, if not required to just jump in the pool, get on the field, get on the stage of research and start to realize how messy, ambiguous, exciting it is. Um, it would, it would be an entirely different and transformative experience. And then lastly, I would say that, you know, I have students come up to me at the end of a class and say, I, I, I love history. And this is, this is before I transformed every, every single class that I take, teach now, including all of my lectures, are research seminars. Every single one of them, we go into the archives on a regular basis. But before that, when it was just lecture and midterm and final and ID quiz, a student might come up to me and say, oh, I really love history. Are you, um, you know, I'm con- considering majoring. I, in the back of my mind, I can't help but think, I'm really glad that you like this and that you're excited about it. But to be honest, nothing that we just did is in fact what I would recognize or any historical researcher would recognize as like what we do in during the day. Um, we this is this is a far cry from that. And so on the one hand, it's like I'm glad you like it. I'm not really sure what it is that you like. And then the same is true when I hear through the grapevine or in course evaluations, like I don't like history or I don't like this course. And I I want to be able to reach through the anonymity of those comments to say, hey, I'm sorry you didn't like the course, but just so you know, nothing we did in that course is actually what I recognize as history and what I and why I love it. And so I really do hope that you have a chance to do research in history because that's where you're really going to find in whatever major, whatever department you're thinking about. If you enjoy producing knowledge in a field, that means that that field is probably a good fit for you. If you don't enjoy what it feels like in the day-to-day and the month-to-month of producing knowledge in I don't know, astrophysics or in classics or in economics, that's the biggest indication that it's probably not your home, like where you're going to feel you can make your biggest contribution and and be surrounded by your peers. Lectures and slideshows and PowerPoints and, and blah, 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 and ID quizzes, that's not really a good barometer of home. Um, and so there's just, there's that three of a thousand reasons why research should absolutely permeate the undergraduate and college experience. And unfortunately that is just not the case. Um, I think in present day society. Chris, would you like to add to that? I was thinking of this one moment in the book where we talk about primary sources and puzzles and that, you know, when, when you're a kid, a lot of puzzles are created for you, like a connect the dots of in the shape of a whale. And all you have to do is connect the dots in a numbered order. And you, I think you could even extend that metaphor a little bit to college syllabi where of course, like so much has been uh, prepackaged for you. And like, you are indeed told part of what's important, like the important conversations and the key turning points and, thinking in the field. And that is all very, very useful. Like that can be very foundational to knowledge and to jumping off to new research questions. But um, doing research, you know, whether you're in high school or college, you know, this should not wait till graduate school um, before you feel qualified to do research. You have to build the puzzle from scratch sometimes, sort of based on, you know, the scratching your own intuition, right? As well as, you know, what your reading experience and the like. It's a really, really key way of building independence, you know, not just going beyond worrying about grades and homework, uh, but to arrive at that insight that in a lot of life, like it it is a problem or a project that you build. And so you have to figure out what is, you know, what, what is the problem here for you? And there's plenty of, again, advice from outside of people telling you what to focus on. There are a lot of preset agendas that you have to again, uh, take into account and decide if they are really your problem there. But I think a, a big part of, you know, research as a way of life, I guess you could say, and, you know, beyond college is when you learn how to embrace that type of uncertainty and make it into something productive. We're starting to run out of time. So I'll ask you uh, my final question, which is what do you hope uh, this episode sparks for listeners? Chris, let's start with you. 
I would say a, a sense of adventurousness and also a feeling that this can be done. Like it, you know, research can be done, this type of open-ended inquiry that is both, I think, dispassionate in the sense of you're agnostic as to what the outcome is. But if you go through the process of doing research and inquiry, of even sometimes starting with really small, granular, factual questions about a phenomenon that you've observed, if you go through that process, it will be uh, tremendously rewarding, not only in kind of uh, satisfying your own curiosity and figuring out what type of person you are, but uh, moving beyond that into this broader sense of self, of you know how your interests and the problems that um, irritate or motivate you, how those uh, impact other people as well. And the reason that we use this concept of centering and kind of building a self-center through research is partly because, you know, you if you have that center, it becomes much easier to pivot. It becomes much easier to change course. And you start to recognize that plan Bs or adjustments to the case study or the scope of your project are not failures, but they're actually really, really useful. And you can feel like you have retained the thing that has the most value to you, even as you adjust, because that is life is a series of adjustments. And I think it becomes much more delightful and and much more rewarding if you carry that center with you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that if if I thought of one thing that hopefully someone listening uh, today or whenever um, might take away is is that research research begins way before you realize that it has started. Your your questions, your problems, um, you've been carrying them around, and they're showing up all all over the place. And in places that have nothing to do with, you know, a university campus, a college campus, the hallways of your high school or wherever your the hallways of your graduate institution, um, they are, for me, they came from like fights at the dinner table and Thanksgiving, or they came in two and a half hour, you know, phone calls with a best friend, what those types of phone calls where your ear hurts at the end of physically hurts because you've just been on the phone so long. Um, they, that's, these are the kind, it's, these are the moments, these are the places where, um, the core questions that make you, you are emerging and sort of showing up. And so, and there is really only one prerequisite to being a researcher. Everything else you can kind of um, learn and, and everyone, every single human being has, has that capacity. The one thing that you have to do and you have to sort of be willing to do is to notice those moments and not assume that they don't and, and 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 make sure not to assume that they don't matter so um because when you notice those moments when you take notice of something and you kind of register that like wow my mind keeps coming back to this or out of everything that I could have seen today something in me drew me to notice this particular feature of the day that is invaluable evidence not only on who you who you are and like what makes you you and what makes you up but that's the core stuff that if you follow it and if you have the the, the sort of confidence to follow it and you're willing to be vulnerable enough to follow it even before you understand what it adds up to those are the things that if we just restrict this to academia, those are the things that lead to the best book in your field, to works that will be assigned on every, you know, every syllabus for the rest of time. These are the moments that give rise to Carlo Ginsburg, the cheese and the worms. This is, these are the moments that lead to the great cat massacre. These are the moments that lead to um, the, the discovery of tectonic plates these are things you know. These little things that that we pick up on and notice in our in our daily life. These these are the alarm. This that's the alarm sounding. Um, and so, 
don't press the snooze button, like pay attention to that, wake up to it and then have the, you know, the willingness and the vulnerability to say, okay, what's, what's up with that? That is the beginning of research. It is not, um, it, it can come from reading a book that's very inspiring. It certainly can come from a lecture. It can come from quote unquote academic sources, but I would venture to guess that 95% of it, even more is coming from these deeply human, deeply personal moments that many of us um, either just don't bother to take note of, are conditioned by society to disregard. Um, and that's the beginning of, that's where research begins uh, in, the, in, 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 those, in those moments. Um, and so take note of them, follow them, find people you trust uh, to listen to them and to help you build them into things. Uh, and then when the time comes, you know, if you go down the path of research, this doesn't mean that you're going to publish something on DNA replicates that starts out saying like, this article is due to a fight I had with my parents at Thanksgiving. You don't have to be, it doesn't have to become explicitly autobiographical in the end. It can, it can, it can sort of look just like a regular peer-reviewed article on DNA or just a piece on the Iliad or the Odyssey or whatever it might be. But there's going to be a sort of depth and a richness and a maturity to it that is going to set it heads and shoulders above the work for those who just sort of went through the motions and never really understood why it is that I was working on this thing in the first place. And everyone has this happening to them all the time. Um, and so please just take note of it and, 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 and really have faith and follow it, I would say. Dr. Ray and Dr. Mullaney, thank you so much for being here today and talking to us about where research begins, choosing a research project that matters to you and the world. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>